Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 7th, 2015, and my guest is Paul Robinson, the Colin S. Diver Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania and the author with Sarah Robinson of Pirates, Prisoners, and Lepers, Lessons from Life Outside the Law, which is our topic for today. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Very pleased to be here. Now, your book surprised me. We've had Econ Talk, Econ Talk episodes on pirates with Pete Leeson and on prisoners with Dave Scarbeck. And those conversations and their books emphasized how order can emerge from the bottom up. But your book, although it's related, focuses on a very different set of questions. In particular, you're interested in cooperation in the absence of government law and deviations from that cooperation. When are those uh, likely to occur? You start by making a rather uh, startling point that human beings must have evolved ways to cooperate with that government because, after all, government appeared pretty late in human history. Uh, Talk about why uh, that's uh, relevant. Sure. Well, I think there is a common wisdom um, that people are sort of selfish uh, at best, uh, if not demonic in many situations. Um, But while that, you know, we we go through our lives and we certainly run into people who on particular occasions, they seem like that, that can't be our basic nature, right? We, We started out as a a victim species, right? We were surrounded on the Serengeti Plains by by predator species who were bigger and faster. And we not only survived, but we flourished. Um, and the one sort of secret weapon that we had was our cooperative abilities. You know, a small human group could get together and through their cooperative efforts could add it to something much more viable, much more powerful than the individuals. So that, uh, that, that very basic human nature is one that is at root uh, cooperative, is helpful and supportive. Um, I'm not sure that's the way people typically think about it, but I think um, no, I agree. the the evolutionary story plus a lot of the a lot of the stories we give in the book, very specific examples we give in the book of human groups for whatever reason thrown off on their own. Even in modern times, that human character comes out when that human group has to sort of deal with just each other with no government to supervise them. And and po- and the possibility of. Uh, no, no other kinds of standard costs that might be paid. So, one of the tell a lot of fascinating and very, very dramatically and well told stories of human uh, humans acting under stress, where you'd think uh, where there's risk of high risk of death, and you'd think that selfishness would rise to the top, and it often does not. So, an example would be the Andes uh, plane crash that was uh, chronicled in the book Alive. Sure. Yeah, I mean, anybody can be nice when 
things are all wonderful, right? That doesn't really count. The real test about sort of what we are like is what we revert to when things are bad, um, when when our survival is at stake. Um, and what's what we try to illustrate in the book is even in those situations, and you know, there are, we have a dozen or two of those, all very, very different kinds of situations, but they have that one factor in common. These, this group is just thrown off on their own and they have to sort of make it. In those very difficult situations, that's when you see humans revert to that, you know, very fundamental cooperative nature. So talk about uh, the situation in the Andes when um, it sure. looked like there was no, no very low chance of survival, not zero, but very, very low. And right. some people were sick, some people were healthy. And what I found, I've, I've never read a live, um, again, which chronicles it, but the what what is surprising, is, as you highlight, is that in that situation, they didn't let the sick people die. They sacrificed resources for those folks at the right. risk of their own lives. Right. Yes. I mean, it's really uh, it's really an amazing story, although a story that's repeated over and over and over in different situations. But you would think in those circumstances, people would say, well, look, here's the sick person. Uh, I mean, we're in a tough spot. I mean, I take care. We'd spend resources on the sick person if we could, but, you know, we really can't afford to. The rest of us healthy people have to sort of, you know, look up for ourselves. But they don't. I mean, it's I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive in some sense. When left to their own devices, they actually take care of the sick folks. Um, and in that particular story, what's really wonderful is it turns out quite a ways down the road and there's nobody had any reason to think that this would be the case. One of the people who they take care of, who was basically near death after the uh, crash from injuries and they sort of revive him, he ends up being the person who against all odds performs a superhuman feat of walking out of the mountains, getting them help and and bringing the help back and basically saving the entire crew. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fairy tale ending, but the, the instinct that ultimately led to it is a very common instinct. Yeah. And I think most of us assume that in those situations, uh, Again, if we think like economists, which I can't help do, you know, th there's a triage situation. We have limited resources. We have to cut our losses. And tragically, we, even if we're, quote, thinking about the group, we might decide to let the weakest members die, to let the stronger ones have a chance of surviving at all. And yet the natural human impulse was not to do that, it seems, at least in this case. Now, one of the challenges, I think, in a book like this is that inevitably there's the risk that you've cherry-picked some anecdotes that – they make your point, and I just don't know about the plane crash where they, you know, killed off the people immediately that were weak so they could eat them. Sure, uh, there was cannibalism right. in in um, in alive uh, with the people right. who had died in the crash, right. and so I assume there's some cases that aren't as uh, cheerful. But I think what's important is that this case, even if it's unusual, is still shocking. Uh, if you're a selfish right. uh, pusher of the selfish, view. right. Right. In fact, we have a couple of chapters where we, ex we try to explore uh, what are the kinds of things that will get into the, get in the way of that cooperative spirit that will cause um, the group to break down and, and to revert to the the survival of the fittest. Uh, and that and that does happen, and it happens regularly. And 
in the book, we have a couple of chapters that sort of talk about that. But I want to go back for a second about your 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 sort of economic analysis of this. And this is sort of by one of my sort of squawks, common squawks about a lot of modern economic theory. Um, it, it The problem is humans are not just rational calculators like machines. Humans have, humans come with some sort of built-in instincts. In fact, the book is about a lot of those instincts that affect human decisions. The desire, the importance of imposing uh, punishment on wrongdoers and so on. You can't justify a lot of that just on pure economic calculations of what's best for me. Um, there's lots of instincts that affect human behavior. Um, and this is just one of them. We, we come with a certain evolutionarily developed uh, collection of in, intuitions and preferences, uh, and those play a role too in our decision-making about our behavior in addition to the rational calculations of self-interest that also can have an effect. Yeah. And, I, and, my, and my concern is that a lot of modern economists aren't, aren't willing to recognize the fact that there are both of those influences, some rational, some not entirely rational. Well, as, as, as our listeners know, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I was trained at the University of Chicago in the, you know, in the high, by the high priesthood of the uh, self-interest is very powerful um, school. But at the same time, my advisor was Gary Becker, and Gary Becker has tried to tried to in his work take the richer view of human nature that really comes from Adam Smith in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and try to integrate it into that approach. Uh, that's the traditional neoclassical maximizing rational approach, and it it you know it it is not really even though Becker got the Nobel Prize, and even though people I think recognize that life is about more than money. <laughs> Despite that, I think most economists get their mileage from self-interest and from um, uh, cost-benefit analysis. Effectively, is what is our model of, of human nature, and and I think that's a that's a tragedy only and especially when they think that's how the world actually works. It's a very yes. useful tool set of tools for getting you started and to think where to look for right. puzzle how to answer a puzzle. But if you start to think that's the way human beings actually are. You you can do some monstrous monstrous and foolish right. things. Well, and it was a useful insight back when um, people thought that humans were all emotions and all instincts, which is absolutely false as well. So it provided um, some you know useful information in trying to understand human conduct. But on uh, just to give a couple of examples from the book about how clearly we are not in the pure self interest. And that that's not the, the simple governing principle. One of the stories we tell is about uh, gold miners. There's actually another story about um, wagon trains west, going west. Um, in both these cases, these groups are, they are in difficult circumstances. And, and the wagon trains, they were under a real time crunch. They couldn't actually start their journeys from the east too early because they needed grass along the way to feed the um, 
the oxen or their horses and their cattle if they were if they were bringing them, um, but they had to get to the other side before the winter came in. They got stuck in the mountains in the winter, so time was everything, and they didn't stop for anything. Uh, somebody died, they would, you know, when they stopped for the night or something, then they would get buried or or, or something else. Uh, some family had a broken wagon, or somebody was was sick so they couldn't be moved well they were just going to get left behind which is which was essentially a a, a a death sentence but the one exception was that these wagon trains would stop for trials of serious offenses in fact even wagon trains uh, that were not part of their group would stop and join in um, partly yeah, that's because, fantastic yeah partly because they for all of them, intuitively, this was something that transcended everything else. Doing justice in cases of serious wrongdoing somehow was more fundamental than than everything else. And the same thing with the miners. The miners had given up everything else in their life, you know, music, hobbies, family. Uh, and they were just out there in the, in the fields uh, mining and, uh, you know, Time was money, um, and that's all they did because uh, you know that's what they were there for. Uh, and there was no stopping for anything. But again, that was the exception. The exception was when there was some serious wrongdoing, the groups would come together, stop mining, and come together, and even call, depending on how serious the offense and how serious the penalty is, call from other camps uh, to join them. And this was a practice that existed everywhere, even though these camps were basically all transients. I mean, every night some group would leave or some would show up. But despite the fact that they'd come from all over the world, this was a very basic practice that was natural to them, in, in part because I think it is human instinct. And uh, doing justice is important. Yeah, we had an episode with Barry Weingast from uh, last summer that We'll put a link up to that listeners can go back to, which which echoes some of those themes with respect to the gold rush. The part I found so interesting in your book is the the part that really resonates with any parent uh, who, who keep observes their children, which is a passion that we seem to have uh, an innate desire for justice and fairness. Uh, that people who play by the rules should be uh, left alone, and people who don't should be sanctioned or punished. And, We'll, we'll turn to the, the consequences of that in a second, but I just want to make the observation that uh, the way I think of it is we want to be part of something larger than ourselves, and that might just be our company or our club or our religious community. And it's just interesting to me, and we're in a political starting a political season here, that you know, politicians are inevitably trying to sell two things. I'm good for you. But if that's all they're good for, they're not going to make it. They have to be convinced people that they're good for other folks that the voter is concerned about. And I think that tension is just – it's a huge part of the human enterprise. And it's uh, Your book yeah. really highlights it. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things is we try to not only tell the stories but also talk about the existing uh, literature, scholarly literature in a very accessible way uh, for, for lay readers. And the studies on this, the importance of doing justice, are just amazing. Um, they, you can replicate a lot of these intuitions 
with uh, game theory, some some of these lab experiments, um, and 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 some of these lab experiments, you, experiments you can see uh, third party people who they are spending their money to when they're watching two people playing a game and one person is sort of taking advantage of their situation and uh, and shortchanging the other person. Uh, being unfair to the other person, the third party who has no interest in in the game at all is willing to pay money to and essentially penalize the person who they see acting unfairly. Now that's just that's bizarre if you th- if you think yeah, about no, and, it. And, and there's no, and there's no other way to explain it. People do it in the say, workplace. You know, people do it. Yeah, in the work- justice, justice and fairness is important to people. Yeah. And people do it in the workplace all the time. They'll do something that's really destructive to their own future, but they're so resentful or angry about the way they've been treated in a deal or a, uh, an employee-employer situation. It's a, just that it's, – it's a very strong um, emotion. T- talk uh, briefly just one more story before – I, I want to get to sanctions and punishment, but talk briefly about uh, the leper colony example because it's a fascinating one. Well, it's uh – uh I mean, of course, it's shocking just to think that this this, this was the Hawaiian solution to their apparent what they thought was their leper problem. They were just going to collect them all and dump them on this island. Um, but like the folks in the Andes plane crash, you know, it was sort of a mix. Some of them were healthy. Uh, some of them were actually quite sick. And the rational thing to do for the healthy ones would have been to say, we're certainly not going to waste our energies taking care of these folks who are sick because the sick people, they can't contribute to anything. They're just a, a net burden. They can't go out in the fields and, and try to do some uh, farming because they don't have toes. They can't stand up, so on and so on. Um, and so they just sort of got dropped on the island, and the folks who are running this program sailed off, came back with another load a couple of weeks later. And, you know, you you wouldn't, in some rational sense, you wouldn't have been surprised if, you know, only a third of the people were left uh, because the rest had all died off. And that wasn't the case. They'd sort of gotten together and, you know, the people who had the ability to do this kind of task, they were off doing that. Everybody was doing something. The strongest people actually ended up being assigned to take care of the, the uh, sick people. And they actually turned themselves into a, a, a colony that uh, really did survive. Um, uh, no, no, thanks to, no thanks to the, to the government at the time. So, I mean, these were great and, and really uh, inspiring stories about human nature. And to me, they're sort of the... Your book is, in in some ways, the anti Lord of the Flies, which um, you know goes the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about why uh, punishment and sanctions are so important, and how they determine often whether these uh, types of challenging and sometimes life threatening situations are going to turn out well or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, part of the this part of the book is 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 to some extent, a response to what, and I'm basically a criminal law professor, and, and, and in my business, I certainly have a chorus of folks who are modern thinkers who, um, for the most part, are happy to toss the notion of uh, deserved punishment and just think about reforming 
uh, rehabilitating uh, offenders. Uh, and I'm actually, I'm completely down with rehabilitating offenders. The more you can rehabilitate people, the better. But there is no substitute for giving people the punishment they deserve. And part of what this part of the book is about is to demonstrate to a lot of the very popular um, uh, criminologists and um, um, sort of rehabilitationists at the exclusion of punishment to, to demonstrate to these folks that they are living in a dream world. They, you simply cannot sort of educate the general population out of their demands for justice to be done. That this is not something that, at least within the kinds of intrusion on personal autonomy that liberal democracies would allow, um, you just can't get people to sort of give up that judgment. And it's sort of silly to think you can. In fact, one of the chapters in the book, one of the, we probably had more fun with it than we than we should. Yes, you uh, did. I noticed. That. Is, <laughs> is the is the chapter about the. Uh, sort of anti-punishment communes um, in the 60s, like Drop City and some other utopian communes where they basically said, well, we're going to go off and everyone is welcome to come and we're not going to have any sort of rules and you know people can do what they want. Yeah, it's, it's really – it's an example of – these are examples of tolerance gone wild, <laughs> right? Anything goes, which, which is an appealing idea. Right, and it's like – as I say in the book, it's like watching – a slow motion train yet, Rick. You you know what is coming. You know the disasters that are ahead, but they are sort of bleeping along, having a great time, and you have to you have to have some considerable sympathy for them because they're so idealistic. They're you know they're doing they're trying to do admirable things, but they simply aren't taking account of the reality of human nature and the notion that they could simply have a commune where there are no rules. Well, you know, some people, sir, are, you know, aren't going to get with the program. Uh, some people are going to take advantage. And if you don't have any kind of sanctioning systems, if one of your operating principles is there can't be any operating principles and there can't be any sanctions to enforce them, well, you pretty much condemn yourself to failure at the start. And every one of these enterprises just collapses uh, over and over again. Um, there are actually some uh, communes that ended up being successful, and a couple of them are still in operation. But what they learned along the way is you can have not many rules, but one of the rules you have to have is there are a couple of basic things that you can't do uh, like injuring uh, other people, um, certain you know intrusions of personal autonomy and so on. And if you do, there are sanctions against you. Um, the, the, the larger community is going to do something about it. They are going to sanction you. you, know, you know, as long as you have a couple of basic rules like that, you can actually make something quite utopian work. But, but just punishment is an essential. Well, when I was reading that chapter, I was thinking about the uh, the pilgrims. And when they arrived uh, in the United States, they um, they started with a communal farming system, 
And the problem they had was poaching. They had if you could go out at night and pick a piece of uh, mm. vegetable before it was ripe, you got all of it rather than having to share it with the other people. It's always a problem. So your choice at that point is either to monitor poaching, sanction it. It was sanctioned, but it was hard to – it was expensive to keep an eye on it. And so they tr- they tr- used private property. They basically said, here's your plot. Uh, everything that you grow on it is yours. And that has a natural self. And property rights, a better way to say it, property rights solve some of these uh, – mm-hmm. reduce yeah. the cost of these kind of uh, problems – if you, however, don't like that and you, or you need to farm – literally for survival reasons, you need to farm in larger plots than would be easy to monitor as individuals, then you need some strict monitoring and sanctions. Or otherwise, the selfish part of us is going to often not uh, – or some of the people's selfishness will overwhelm their cooperative urge. Yeah, yeah. Now, and what's, what's interesting in this sort of sanctioning business is um, there is – a cost to imposing sanctions. First of all, you've got to get some person or group within the larger group who's willing to actually impose the sanctions. And, you know, there's, there can often be just some danger in doing that. But this goes back to the sort of fundamental uh, nature of the importance of doing justice. People are willing to make those kind of personal sacrifices. So the group, in a sense, gets saved from itself. As long as you have, as long as you have some people who are willing to make the sacrifice of being the the uh, communally approved punisher, um, you can make it work. And sometimes, uh, sometimes the cost is uh, of, of being that person is is uh, quite significant. One of the stories we tell is about um, concentration camps. Uh, a lot of these stories, these sort of absent law situations are, you know, the plane rack or you put the lepers on the island or something like that. But one of the things we point out is that you can essentially get the same kind of absent law situation without being off in some remote location, right? I mean, in the concentration camps, obviously the guards care tremendously about how you deal with them or with your work, but they care nothing about how the prisoners deal with each other. So within some barracks, there's essentially complete lawlessness, right? There's no courts. There's no law. No there's government no law. nothing. Right. Yes, you're, you're right. It's just the group is, they might as well be on a remote island for all that matters. And one of the stories we talk about is um, it was not uncommon to have, you know, a couple of bad apples who, you know, they're trying to survive. So what they would do at night would be to go around and uh, uh, those uh, inmates who were already kind of weak uh, go around and steal uh, food from them. A lot of prisoners, it's common practice for a lot of prisoners to save a little piece of bread or something for when they were, you know, they really needed it because they didn't have it. They were just going to collapse. Uh, and, you know, so you get somebody who will go around at night and and steal this from the weaker folks because um, everyone else is asleep. And even if the weak folk sort of woke up, then, it, you know, it's easy to deal with them. And what would happen is some of the stronger folks would basically stay up all night, take turns, staying up all night uh, to make sure this didn't happen, knowing that staying up all night meant that they were going to have a problem come daybreak. And during the work of the next day, 
their having stayed up all night could be just enough to make them not be able to make it through. And maybe, maybe you get sent to the gas chamber when you're no longer a useful worker uh, because you seem unable to keep up that day. So it was, uh, it really was heroic in some ways, uh, but they didn't think of it in those terms. Yeah. I, um, that's a fascinating uh, example. And there's, there's many, many in the book of people who bear personal costs to help the group in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial to them. And there's no accounting. There's no other than the group sanctions. You say at one point, uh, and you don't say this literally, but this is the, the, the th- a huge theme of the book. In the absence of government law, people organize themselves, establish norms, and ideally establish ways to enforce those norms. And so one of the questions that you don't talk about is, you know, what are the limits to that process? I'm more of a – I'm a classical liberal head, heading toward uh, an anarcho-capitalist. I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I think government has important roles to play, but – I think in our current society, we've gone way too far. You don't talk about uh, what the limits might be. We've talked implicitly that obviously if the costs of sanctioning are sufficiently high, you might want to have the state do it. Do you have any other thoughts on, on some of the limits to, to that norm, the self-organizing forms of cooperation? Uh, limits on uh, punishment? No, on their or- effectiveness. So, so I'm, I was going to ask this later. I'll ask you now. Um, the welfare state, the welfare state forces, mm. forces us to help others. I suggest, and I don't think it does a very good job. Um, I don't think it's good at, for the humans side of, of the equation. I think it's great at transferring money. It's not so good at creating meaningful lives, either for the people who are taxed or the people who receive the benefits. And there are benefits obviously to having the state do it co- coercively, but in a, in a different world, we would have an incentive as individuals to cooperatively join with others right. to help folks. And we do that now. Yes. Obviously, there's tons of charity yes. that's given that's actual real charity. A lot of it's right. not. A lot of it's club goods and other forms of, of consumption. Right. right. But but the, but the point is that the government in many ways has taken away the obligation of a lot of people to um, to make their own contributions. Right. They, Absolutely. And, 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 a, and a lot of these uh, smaller groups, I mean, if you if you, if you you only have to go a couple hundred years back, you don't have to go back to Serengeti Plain. Um, one of the reasons that there was this natural cooperative instinct in groups and groups in difficult circumstances sort of made it because everybody in that group understood understood that their success and survival depended upon others. So all of them. Uh, had incentives. There are, you know, complications that come from a world in which uh, we no longer deal with people personally, where government stands between us and everyone else. Uh, the government simply provides. Um, and once government is providing and you no longer have any a sense of accountability or responsibility for contributing to the larger enterprise, well, you know, some people don't. And yeah, what do you do about that? It, certainly the advent of government has made our lives better in many ways, but it has certainly complicated the nature of our, uh, our interactions uh, with one another. It, it has, cr- it has made it possible for us to be uh, much more individually isolated from uh, 
the rest of our community. Which is ironic, right? As I think a lot you of know, people see yeah. government uh, as a way to express this cooperative urge. I, I rail against it constantly on this program, and I we have, we have many listeners who find my railing offensive, but I, I don't see government as a uh, – let me give a contrast. I just happened to be watching uh, Witness, the Harrison Ford movie Peter Weir directed mm. in 1985. Mm, it's a fabulous movie. movie, and my favorite – one of my favorite scenes in that movie is uh, they raise a barn. They have a day, and all the neighbors mm, come from yeah. miles around, and they build their neighbor a barn. Um, right. And there's food put out for the workers, and it's uh, it's the music's phenomenal. It's just such a great scene. But right. um, you know, today and, yeah. they, and and they in their turn have uh, their son have a barn built for them. Yeah, yeah. And as a result. Uh, in a world where you could say apply to the Department of Agriculture for a grant to have your barn built or to have a government agency build your barn, as you point out, uh, our cooperative urges get dulled. That's the word you use. They get dulled. And they're yeah. always there. Right? But I think when you take away the incentive, my argument is, is that it's not just that the government might not do it as well or maybe it'll do it better even. But – I worry about the fact, I not worry, but it bothers me that that essential part of our humanity that you write about in the book doesn't have that outlet anymore. Maybe it spills over somewhere else. I, you know, right. to me, it spills over on Sunday to football games where we we <laughs> cooperatively get together and scream and cheer in a nice, harmless way for our enemies to be destroyed. But that's well. The the book is is not at all meant to be anti-government. It is that the message I think is uh, a little more nuanced, and that is government can do wonderful things. If government understands what human nature is and tries to build upon that human nature rather than disregarding it or trying to tear it down. So in the context of just punishment, for example, uh, government spending its time as you actually see uh, sometimes um, government uh, trying to convince people that they shouldn't care about justice being done. Um, that, and that, as I said earlier, it's not only hopeless, I think it's uh, bad policy. Government taking account of the fact that people think uh, doing justice is really important um, and uh, and this is the and it's the flip side. Justice, of course, goes in both directions. Not yeah, only should we be point. opposed to failures of justice, we also are as concerned, as sensitive to uh, injustices. Uh, government that understands people's interest in both directions and and having punishment, but only just punishment, would would. Uh, be much more careful to focus on the importance of doing justice. Uh, but in fact, we have a criminal justice system that regularly trades off justice to promote uh, other interests, um, not necessarily you know, inappropriate interests, but interests that uh, I think the, the folks who, 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 who have sort of created these trade-offs didn't really appreciate the hidden costs to failures of justice or to doing injustice. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that because in the earlier discussion, we talked about how – talked about the importance of punishment. But much – a good check, chunk of the book, and it's very powerful, talks about uh, excessive punishment and how sure. uh, uh, how uh, 
disturbing that is to most of us yeah. people who do. Well, this, this goes back to, if you think about the origins, this goes back to the sort of maintaining cooperation. You can as effectively lose, co- lose cooperation if the group sees that people are uh, violating some basic rules that protect personal autonomy and nothing happens to them. But also you can lose cooperation if the group sees that somebody is is being uh, punished far in excess of what they deserve. In fact, one of my favorite uh, stories here is just to make it clear how fundamental these instincts are. Um, in groups of um, uh, gorillas, um, in fact, m- most animals that are social animals, you will see precursors to these kind of justice judgments. Uh, but one of the things that happens in these in gorilla groups is they have some basic rules, and they're like they're actually like the rules that you see and that some of these absent law human groups make up, like the plane crash or something else. They have some basic rules about what you can't do, and if you violate one of the rules, then one of the big males, um, you know, sort of gets to beat on you. Um, but one of the things that also happens is a lot of the older females will sit and very carefully watch what's done. And if the, and if the big punishing male doesn't back off when the appropriate amount of punishment has gone to, they step in. As the group understands that there's to be this proportionality between the seriousness of the wrongdoing and the seriousness of the punishment, and the group as a whole will insist on meeting that proportionality requirement, even if the sort of official punisher uh, misses the misses the mark. Yeah, I find this part of the reason um, op- the optimal punishment literature in economics is so weird. You know, this idea that. I think it's very reasonable to assume that criminals have some awareness of the expected cost of their actions, which would be the probability that they're caught and the consequences of their being of the, if they're caught. And if the probability of being caught is low, that suggests that, that we should make the punishment very high. But there's an inherent yeah. unfairness in that because it means that the people who are actually caught are bearing a very disproportionate penalty relative to those who aren't caught. Yeah. And I think that bothers us, even when they've done yeah. something wrong. Yeah. Well, this is the example when I was talking before about the hidden costs on trading off justice against other interests. Uh, that sort of general deterrence program is, I think, a very nice example of that, where the, the, the folks who push general deterrence as a distributor principle for punishment um, are willing to punish more than is deserved if they can get the right kind of um, you know, deterrent effect, uh, and, and which avoids a certain amount of crime in the future. And I totally get this is, I mean, generally deterrence is a wonderfully yeah. efficient <laughs> mechanism for avoiding future crime, and, and avoiding future crime is a great thing to do, so I totally get it. But what the analysis misses is that there's also a hidden cost yep. in, in giving somebody more punishment they deserve. It undermines the system's moral credibility with the community, and that in itself has crime control uh, effectiveness costs. People are less willing to be uh, cooperative and helpful. They're much more willing to subvert the system, less, much less willing to internalize its norms. So the good utilitarian who, who weighs all the costs and benefits, frankly, I think 
has to come away saying, oh, no, maybe the, the real, the most efficient criminal justice system is going to be one that is, they can harness all those powerful forces of social influence and internalized norms by um, being, uh, you know, the most the most morally credible system, the system which has earned itself a great reputation for being just, avoiding injustice, avoiding failures of justice, that kind of reputation as a real moral authority, that has real social power. And utilitarians concerned about gaining compliance, you know, ought to be very interested in harnessing those social influences. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of that, and I want, I'm going to push back on let you let you defend that view. And it, this is something that I think is implicit in the book that uh, I found I didn't totally agree with, which is in a small group setting, I totally understand how deviations from just that punishment is necessary to encourage cooperation, and that deviations from justice are going to be viewed very poorly by members of the group, and that'll discourage cooperation in either direction. So, so. Punishment that's that's arbitrary and and capricious will discourage cooperation as will uh, lax lax punishment. I find it harder to accept the idea that that's part of what's happening in a in a larger society. So I I definitely agree that in our current world right now there there are a lot of people very upset about the level of punishment in our criminal justice system either on the street or in the in our prisons. But what I find interesting is how depending on your ideology you tend to go one way or another. So. Former guest uh, Arnold Kling talks about the three languages of politics. So conservatives tend to see everything on a civilization versus barbarism axis. Liberals tend to see uh, the world through oppressor versus oppressed eyes. And libertarians see it through coercer versus voluntary eyes. So if you're a liberal, I think people people who are generally liberal look at prisons and say they're horrible because there's a bunch of people there who don't deserve any punishment. Uh, and they're being oppressed. Uh, conservatives tend to think, well, if you did something wrong, hey, it's your fault. And and they tend to think that our – and I've heard this many times. Uh, oh, the prisons are like country clubs. You know, it's, it's easy. Everybody gets off. Their criminal justice system is inept. And uh, libertarians are sort of in between. But my to come back to my main point, sorry for the rambling question, um, we all have our own perception of what the criminal justice system's flaw is. Nobody really has a good feel for what it's actually like. Mm. And to suggest yeah. that that's part of our problem of cooperation just doesn't doesn't make uh, doesn't mm. commun- convince me. So defend your view. Yeah, yeah no, this is a, this is, I think, a very interesting issue. Um, I think the you're, you're absolutely right that politics does tend to drive a lot of the talk on these kinds of issues. But what the empirical studies show us is that there is a uh, a shared intuition about justice that cuts across all demographics. That as long as you, it doesn't matter what somebody's politics are. If you, for example, there's, there was a, a study, I think we'd probably talk about it in the book, where you ask people to rank order, I think it's like 26 uh, little stories of different cases. And essentially everybody, um, it's a Kendall's W, I think of 0.96, which is staggering. Essentially everybody ranks them exactly the same. Uh, And it doesn't matter what their politics are. People have people really do have shared judgments about 
the relative blameworthiness of offenders. But once a, and if you were just talking about regular run-of-the-mill cases, if people were sitting in a courtroom and listening to all the facts and listening to the pre-sentence report, I think you'd get an enormous amount of agreement about the relative seriousness of, of the cases that they, they saw in a day. But as soon as a case hits the headlines, once it gets uh, that sort of political interest, that sort of short circuits people's intuitions. The case then, they can't see the case for its real facts. They somehow um, just go to, oh, well, what is the, you know, what is the politically correct answer given my particular political point of view? Um, I, I think one, what this suggests is that there's real hope for the criminal, criminal justice system. You can cut through all these political differences by having people focus on, uh, you know, the core of, of what's important for justice. The, this notion about the relative, having punishment reflect the relative blameworthiness of offenders. That's something that uh, doesn't matter what somebody's politics are. If you can get them to focus on those sort of basic issues about relative blameworthiness, people will agree on, on, on most things. And you can construct a criminal justice system that uh, people would all uh, sign on to. Um, so and it's really a very positive story, but it's a story that um, basically argues that the 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 politics here is something that interferes and distorts with people's normative intuitive judgments about justice. I agree with all that and totally and I 100%. The question I'm I'm really asking is first we misperceive the data through our own ideological lenses, right? So as you point out what we read in the headlines and we choose what we read because we listen to and watch the shows that often confirm our biases or read the newspapers that do. So what I'm wondering is, is that you seem to be suggesting at one point that we'd have more, we'd have a more cooperative society if our justice system was fairer. And I just don't, I like the idea of a fairer justice system for its own sake. I think that's a wonderful argument. And I think you highlight some horrific. But you don't think you, but you don't think you can get there because of the politics. No, 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 no. I think you could get there. I think conceivably, for example, uh, you talk about a, a shocking law called felony murder where uh, an accusation where somebody somebody's roommates borrow his car at night against his will at first, but then eventually right. says, okay, right. they he, go borrow he, his he, car. He, he's home asleep after yeah. his, 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 his mother's wedding and his, his roommate borrows the car and lends it to some other folks who go off and do something bad. They and kill he's somebody. In, he, he's in prison for life. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. just – I think when you, sh- when you share that story with people who are, quote, want to be tough on crime, they'll say, well, yeah, that was too tough. But that's an exception. That's one case, and it no, usually doesn't that happen. Is, that, is, that is the absolute standard form. <laughs> one, of the thing, one, of the things, one of the things we did was uh, I have a criminal law research group here at University of Pennsylvania, and we were commissioned by the state of Pennsylvania and the state of New Jersey to do some grading studies of their criminal codes. And the part of our, our reports sort of demonstrate this astonishing conflict between um, uh, citizens' judgments about 
what punishment should be in different cases, their relative punishments in, in different cases, when they're actually given the facts of a case versus what those same citizens, when they're, you know, uh, parroting the political bumper sticker of the day, what they say. You can take some serious conservative and some serious lefty who think they don't agree with anything and you give them a bunch of uh, cases and get them to talk about what should actually happen in the cases where they know the people, they know the facts, and you give them a dozen cases, they're probably going to agree on those cases. And we report in the in these reports, I think this actually is mentioned, mentioned in some places in, in, in the book, um, there's an enormous amount of agreement, uh, again, across uh, demographics and the agreement seriously conflicts with what the criminal codes now provide. No, I, I agree um, with that. And again, I think that's fascinating. The connection I'm questioning is, and, and by the way, I just want to add again, as I like to do on the program as a Patriots fan in, in writing and uh, talking in August of 2015, I think if I sat you down with the facts, I could get you to think even that Tom Brady might even be innocent. But let's put that to the side for the moment. What I'm suggesting is the following. <laughs> You're making the case – Appreciate that. You're making the case that uh, in a group, when I feel there's unjust sanctions and punishment, I won't be as cooperative as I otherwise would be. Are you also suggesting that our current criminal justice system, which which I also agree with you, is is not very good at tying punishment to blameworthiness? Does that discourage our cooperation societally? Does that does that encourage well, lawbreaking, which I think you, yeah, you suggest? Okay. okay. Yes. 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 And and here's the, here's the the mechanism that comes from this is the connection between a criminal justice system that has gotten itself a bad reputation because people see it as doing as being unreliable judges of the amount of punishment that somebody deserves and the actual. It, the crime control effectiveness, uh, which, and my argument is that it, it, it undermines crime control effectiveness. One of the studies that we, we report in the book, for example, is where um, you bring some folks into the uh, psych lab and you do a bunch of tests that gives you a sense about how much they're willing to comply, you know, are they willing to report crimes, be witnesses, um, are they willing to uh, internalize the norms if some new offense is created, do they take that to mean that it's really condemnable conduct, like, you know, insider trading, you know, we don't, we never really took it too seriously before, now the criminal law says, oh no, we're going to increase the penalties, this really is a really condemnable uh, conduct, do we, do we sort of take that to heart and say, oh, you know, now that you mention it, you know, this criminal law really seems to have a very good judge of what's really condemnable and other things. So I guess I got to rethink this whole insider trading thing. Maybe it is condemnable or whether it's drunk driving or domestic violence or a lot of, a lot of other things. Um, those, uh, there, there are mechanisms by which uh, people's attitudes, attitudes about the criminal law actually turn into um, their uh, willingness to comply. So in these studies that I was 
that I was uh, talking about. We find out what people's willingness to defer to the criminal law is. And then, you know, you distract them by doing a few other tasks. And then you give them some real-world cases. You give them a bunch of cases where the criminal law has seriously screwed up. Uh, and then you can show in the testing that they are now, you know, a bit more disillusioned about the criminal law. And then a few more distracting tasks, and you retest to see what uh, their level of compliance is now. Are they willing to subvert it or help it? Are they willing to internalize the norms or not? And even in the lab, in these kind of studies, you can see a significant reduction in their willingness to comply. Now, that's amazing in some ways because people come into the lab and, you know, they have a lot of information about the criminal justice system already. And the experimenter can't really, can only sort of nudge their conclusion about the system, you know, a little bit. Yet, even with that little nudge, you can see significant comparable reduction in their willingness to comply. And we've, we've reproduced these same studies using separate groups, right? Where one group you give the dissolutioning effect and another group you don't, and you can see the differences. Or you have three different levels of disillusionment and you get three different levels of compliance. So I think there is a lot of uh, modern data in support of that connection. The reputation of the system really does matter. Well, I if think you're that, talking about effective crime control. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. And I do think uh, recent events in the United States, uh, starting really with the um, Snowden case down through Ferguson and Baltimore uh, and some of the tragic deaths of people on the street that have been chronicled and are public now only because of cell phones and the Internet. I think it's, it has dis disillusioned people and it has gotten people to be more wary of the criminal justice system who mm -hmm. who are, quote, honest, good law-abiding people and think there's no risk for themselves, but they're, they're a little bit, I think people are a little bit alarmed of it. I, I was probably thinking about a, a more... Uh, can, before we leave that, can yeah, I mention ahead. this? Um, one of the chapters we have is on uh, uh, prohibition, American prohibition, yeah. which I, I think that. is really wonderful uh, because that really demonstrates this this dynamic on a, on a large scale, right? The, you know, the we're, for a lot of interesting reasons, we, we vote in uh, prohibition, uh, but then, you know, so it's it's broken so often, even by public officials, nobody takes it seriously. Um, so it's no surprise that, you know, you have a lot of violation of prohibition laws. What's less obvious to people, but I think really telling, is that during prohibition, um, crime rates generally went up, even if it had nothing to do with prohibition, you had crime rates going up because there was this general effect. Uh, people would look at the criminal law, see that they simply didn't see drinking alcohol as condemnable conduct, and that undermined their faith that, that, that the criminal law really knew what was, what was condemnable and what wasn't. Saw a lot of other people breaking the criminal law with uh, and not feeling bad about it, you know, there was the, the community sense was that the criminal law was just being sort of silly and out of step here. And that reduction in its um, reputation, its moral reputation translated into a lot of other areas. And you, uh, it was a very bad time for, for crime uh, until, you know, prohibition was, 
was repealed and, and, and criminal law started trying to earn back some of its lost reputation. I want to give a different example that I think um, makes your case in a different context. I think the, the connection I'm trying to think about is what is lost in civil society when government takes over certain functions that could be done privately, that cooperatively, or when government reduces the reliability of punishment and the justice of it. And particularly that second one, at an extreme, you can see it in a case like uh, Stalinist Russia, the Soviet mm. Union, where you know that if you you know the, the famous example and for me and the not famous but the big example for me in the Gulag is you know you, somebody wraps a piece of fish in a newspaper and the picture of Stalin happens to be on the fish. They used a piece of newspaper that had a picture of Stalin, and so you, you get a ten year. Prison sentence, which is, you know, we joke about a 10-year sentence. And, but in, in Soviet, in the gulag, 10 years could kill you, literally. And uh, so in that kind of world where your neighbor can entrap you or whisper about you or tell a story that can give you a 10-year and possibly a death sen- the equivalent of a death sentence, you don't want to hang out with your neighbor so much. You know, the, the, uh, the, when, when you go to form clubs in – the thugocracies and those kind of societies, uh, the authorities see those clubs as a threat and they will have informers there and they will right. – and it's just the, the whole tenor of civil society can be destroyed by that kind yes. of lack of faith. Right, right. Yes, this goes to your cooperation point. Yes, yes, I, I see. What, well, actually, we actually talk about the, the Soviet example uh, at one point and I think one of the interesting things is after the collapse of the Soviet Union – you had a significant crime problem because you had a criminal law which, as you say, had had a very bad reputation as a moral authority. It was effective only because of its uh, coercive police state um, uh, power. And once that was gone with the with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it didn't ha- it didn't have anything left. Whereas there are a lot of societies in the world where the, you don't need much. The criminal law does not do much coercively because its reputation is such that it's very, uh, it's a very powerful social influence. It doesn't need that police well, uh, apparatus. And it also lets the non-governmental norms, the respect and shame and, and other things that and we talk about when we talk about Adam Smith's desire that we have to be lovely. We want, we have an innate desire, Smith says, to to earn respect and to be respectable, to earn respect honestly from those around us. And when you have a world where people are honored and promoted and paid for portraying their neighbors, uh, that, as you say, that urge gets dulled and it doesn't yeah. maybe come back so easily. Yeah, yeah. I want to close with with a with a really powerful um, insight that I had not thought of, uh, and I want to hear you maybe go into a little more detail than you did in the book. You tell some really depressing and really very powerful stories about criminals, uh, serial murderer, for example, who gets off from conviction because the evidence that was gathered against him was gathered in an illegal way, and this is a common tension in in, in civil rights and. And the legal system, and, and I've always been sympathetic to the idea that okay, it's terrible that a that a person gets off uh, f- from committing a crime and doesn't um, doesn't pay a price. But we also want to make sure that the police don't right. do 
things that are yeah. that are um, oppressive. Absolutely. And yeah. yet you point out, which I think is just – I'm embarrassed I never thought about it. There are other ways to discourage police misbehavior than just throwing out the case. Yeah. That's the yeah. – in fact, yeah. it's the wrong punishment. That doesn't even punish yeah. the – I mean the police yeah. would rather have a conviction. But why aren't we punishing them rather than rewarding right. the criminal? Right. Yeah. No, the, the, I think I talk about the Eiler case, for example, where you have a, a, a serial murderer uh, who gets off uh, really for just a trivial violation. He's he's uh, held on the road for questioning when a, a trooper just happens to stumble by when he's got one of his victims about ready to deal with them. Uh, but the judge later decides, well, he's been held a little too long. So... Uh, whole thing gets he, thrown out. It, the whole thing gets thrown out. All the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming that he's killed all these people, and then he goes off uh, and kills somebody else uh, later on. The point is, in in, in a lot of these cases, um, it would be more effective, essentially, if you really have had some misconduct by the police, sanction the police officers. The police officer doesn't really care that much if. You know, what happens to some other offender? I mean, he's doing a job, but if he was going to get a, you know, a suspension of days pay, you just something that minor, uh, you'd probably get them jumping. In fact, it's, it's, the, it's the police unions who have uh, unfortunately blocked this, I think, much more effective approach to the exclusionary rule. Uh, so it's nobody wants to live in a world that doesn't have some kind of limitations on uh, police intrusion in our personal lives. But but think about how to do it, to, to be able to do it in a uh, non-justice frustrating way um, would allow the system to, to have a much better reputation for doing justice and at the same time might be more effective in controlling police. So are there any sanctions, even implicit sanctions for police who – Ruin a case because they look, you know, they crack open typically somebody's no. trunk without a, without permission, and then. No, T- typically no, and in fact, one of the one of the reasons uh, why uh, the current system uh, doesn't work very effectively uh, is because even the police uh, higher ups see the exclusionary rule as essentially immoral. Explain letting, explain what that is, is, the exclusionary rule. This, this is the exclusionary rule where some police you know, doesn't follow the rules or gets the, the application of the rules wrong or something, and therefore the evidence that was seized, although it's very reliable, gets excluded. So the jury is hidden from the jurors at trial. That's the, the exclusionary rule. Um, a lot of the, the police culture typically sees the exclusionary rule as essentially immoral. So... They, they're more than half, for example, testaline. You probably heard that phrase, testaline. This was a phrase created by uh, officers on the New York Police Department. I don't know the phrase. What, what does it mean? Testaline? Yeah. It is, it, it, their view was it was actually morally okay to lie in court about the circumstances regarding a search or a seizure uh, if it was necessary to avoid application of the exclusionary rule. Right. All these cops who would never think it would be appropriate to lie about some criminal case, this was their exception. If it concerned the search and seizure rules, the rule itself was so immoral 
that it was morally okay to testify uh, incorrectly, test a lying, test a lie in court about the, the uh, search and seizure. Because um, the person's guilty. So what? It's, we're going to get to the right in their mind. Yeah, if I'm doing I, the right I, yeah. thing. I, I'm standing up for justice, and this crazy rule is, is anti-justice. Um, I'm morally justified. It's these crazy courts that have it wrong. I just I, – I never – again, I never thought about it. It's a strange concept to say you gathered this evidence in an inappropriate way. Therefore, the price will be paid by us <laughs> rather no. than you. It's I mean what's, a, interesting, what's interesting is the Europeans who obviously have the same sorts of issues, who care as much about uh, controlling uh, police, do not have the kind of – wooden application that the uh, that the U.S. does on the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule has a very, very complicated set of rules that police have to follow about when they can search and how to do it and all. And if you violate any of them, bang, the evidence is, is out. Uh, in Europe, it's much more of a balancing uh, of was there real fair unfairness done to the defendant Right. And what was the seriousness of the police violation versus what was the seriousness of the offense? The the European courts are much more likely to look at the bigger picture and say, how is society better off and balancing, you know, the costs and benefits? Uh, in this case, the, the criminal justice system reputation for protecting citizens' privacy is important, but the criminal justice system reputation for doing justice is important too. And as it turns out, the Europeans actually have a uh, a better. If you look at the polls, the the, the surveys have uh, do better in the fairness of their criminal justice system than the Americans do. Uh, despite the fact that they have this much more flexible approach to controlling how they control police conduct. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think the average American has a lot more awareness of some of the in a unjust applications uh, in our uh, unjust punishments and unjust interactions between the legal authorities and the average person than they did, say, 15, 20 years ago because of the Internet, because of cell phones. I guess Rodney King would be the, the beginning of this sort of era where – People started to be exposed to stuff they didn't have much direct knowledge of, and now we have a little more direct knowledge. Do you think it is merely an information question that the system is about the same as it always has been and just that we're aware of it now? And either way, my question is, do you think it's going to lead to any kind of change? Um, there's a lot of outrage. People are upset. Um, a lot of those people who are upset are not very powerful politically. Is it going to matter? What are your thoughts of where the criminal justice system in America might be heading in the near future? Um, that's a hard one. Um, to some extent, we're, what we're seeing is um, it, when, when there is this sort of public – a particular case gets blown into the headlines – uh, is useful sometimes because a lot of the stuff does go on at a low level and nobody pays attention to it. And this exposure in the press really uh, makes people uh, aware. On the other hand, once it gets those headlines, it tends to, the discussion sometimes tends to spin out of control. Um, 
that it then becomes a political issue and people sort of stop thinking about it. Longer term, I am sort of optimistic, uh, but probably not because of these headline cases. I am I am optimistic about reform because I think we are coming to understand that to a large extent, the criminal justice system is in a uh, a credibility competition. Its reputation really does have an effect on uh, crime control effectiveness. Every time a police officer has contact with a citizen is an opportunity for that officer to do something good, to build the system's reputation and increase the the moral influence of the system, or to do something bad, to be disrespectful, uh, to be arbitrary, uh, to worsen the system's reputation, which will hurt its overall uh, crime control effectiveness. And I think there is, among those people who do really do have influence on police culture, I think they are coming to see that um, this, these points of contact between citizens and police, every one of them is important. And I, would, I actually am optimistic that uh, we will improve police selection, police training, and police culture uh, in the future. Uh, and I think that, that really will be key to having a, a more effective system that will get more deference. My guest today has been Paul Robinson. His book is Pirates, Prisoners, and Lepers. Paul, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.